My oldest sister, Jeannie, has become our family's unofficial historian. In researching our family genealogy and history, she's dug through old public and church records, taken trips back east and to Europe, discovered and visited distant relatives. She's even traveled thousands of miles to visit cemeteries in Pennsylvania and Maryland to locate ancestors' grave sites. So I wasn't completely surprised when I saw her in February And she gave me a box and asked me if I would take this DNA test so she could help narrow down our family of origins even more. And all along the way, she's discovered all kinds of things about our family we never would have imagined. And it turns out we even have a horse thief numbered among them who was hung in the mid-1800s. When I think of her interests, though, it reminds me of the children of a well-to-do family who decided to give their father, as a birthday present, a book containing their family history, something he was very, very proud of. So they contacted and then commissioned a professional biography to do the research and the writing. But when they met with him, they cautioned him about mentioning their Uncle George, because he was the black sheep of the family who had been executed in the electric chair for murder. And even the mention of Uncle George's name was an extreme embarrassment to their father. So they told the biographer that perhaps it would be best if he left Uncle George out of the book altogether. But the biographer assured them there was no need to do that. He said, I can report the situation in such a way that there would be no embarrassment to their father at all. With some reservations, they gave him permission to proceed. And when the book was finished, they discovered that the biographer was truly true to his word. He had written, Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics (laughs) at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest ties, and his death came as a real shock. (laughs) Words can be used to mean so many things and sometimes very different things depending on who and how they're being used. Take the words we hear and say quite often. I believe in Jesus. If you went out and you asked people if they believed in Jesus, depending on whom you asked, you might get responses like, yes, I believe in Jesus. He was a great prophet. Or, yes, I believe in Jesus, he was an angel. Or, yes, he was a great man who lived such a good life that he worked his way up to become a god himself. Or, yes, I believe in Jesus, he was a, a good moral teacher. He was an enlightened man. Or, or, yes, I believe in Jesus, he was a real person, not a real person, he was a mythic character created by the early Christians to embody the longings and the hopes they had. Some even go so far as to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was an alien. Or possibly, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was the first alien-human hybrid. Those are actual positions, every one of them, that people have or do hold. When we say we believe 
what and who exactly are we talking about? You may recall that Jesus even asked his followers that very question. In Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That question of Jesus is a critical one. Perhaps the most important question you ever have to answer. Who do you say that he is? And how you answer that determines your eternity. Even back then, when he walked, people couldn't agree on the answer. Some were saying one thing and others saying something else. Some were saying he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Some were saying he's Elijah, or a Jeremiah, or a different great prophet, or a teacher, or a great man, or a miracle worker, or a fraud, or demon-possessed. So many different views back then that divided them, and things have only gotten worse since. As I said last week, by sharing different views on Jesus, my intent is not to be critical, but to help us understand our differences. Because we need to know What it is we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus. What is that faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints? Judaism says he may have been a prophet who went about doing good and teaching the golden rule, but he's certainly not divine or the son of God. Islam says he was a great prophet, but not God the son. Hindus say he was a great teacher, a guru, perhaps even one of the millions of incarnations of Brahman. Buddhists say he was a man who attained enlightenment, or Buddhahood. Jehovah Witnesses say he was a created being, the first and greatest of God's creation, also known as Michael, the archangel. Mormonisms call him the Son of God, by which they mean he was physically and spiritually God's Son, brother of Lucifer and husband of Mary and Martha. Baha'i say he was the Son of God, but he wasn't divine. He was one of God's manifestations alongside of Krishna, Buddha, Abraham, Moses, Muhammad, and others. Sikhs believe he was not divine, but a man through whom God worked to reveal himself. The Unification Church say he was a perfect man, faithful to God, who attained deity through his works, but he wasn't equal to God. Secular humanism say he was just another teacher, a good man. And various other groups say he was one of many appearances of God through the ages, by which they mean he was one of many people who were aware of their inner divinity. Peter said... And for 2,000 years now, the Christian church has taught he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that answer still leaves open for discussion. Who is he? And what do we mean when we call him such things as the Christ, or the Son of God, or Messiah? That's where 
historical creeds of the church can help us. They were written specifically for this reason, to provide guidance and help clear up some of the confusion by drawing boundaries, defining what is true and acceptable and what isn't. With so many disparate views, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the longest section deal with Jesus and who he is. We've read together a couple of times now the Apostles' Creed, which begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then it continues, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That statement essentially speaks of three essential elements of who is Jesus. It speaks of his incarnation, his humiliation, and his exaltation. After his death and resurrection, disagreement quickly arose over his nature. Was he man or was he God? Was he part man and part God? Was he all man or was he all God? And out of that discussion came the statement, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin of Mary, his incarnation. You know, both Hinduism and Islam accept the idea of the virgin birth. Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God, so the idea is rejected. Jehovah Witnesses believe that since he was the first of creation, it was his life force transferred from heaven into Mary. Mormons believe that God had intercourse with Mary and she gave birth to Jesus. And the Unification Church believes that Mary had sex with Zacharias, her cousin Elizabeth's husband, father of John the Baptist. And so Jesus and John were half-brothers. In contrast, Scripture teaches he's not merely a part of creation. He's one with the Creator, or as Paul wrote in Colossians 1.6, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The Apostle John wrote much the same thing when he said, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made. And the writer of Hebrews states, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is a great teacher, the greatest who ever lived. But that's not all he was and is. He did perform many miracles. But he did so much more than a miracle worker. He is enlightened, but that doesn't define him. He's not just some wandering Eastern sage of great wisdom. He's not another celebrity wannabe on the TV and lecture circuit talking about their insights and thoughts about God. He's not just another one of God's representatives, like one of the prophets of old, or just another mediator between God and man, like one of the priests. He's not just another leader of God's people like one of the ancient kings. He's not some intermediary being, not quite God and not quite man. He's God. Or as John put it, 
He is the word that became flesh and made his and lived among us. Those who opposed Jesus when he lived understood what he was claiming. Because it says in John 10, at one point they even picked up stones intending to kill him. And when he asked him why, he said, because you are claiming to be God. As Athanasius said in the 4th century, not only was God in Christ, not only did God work through Jesus Christ, but God came as the man Jesus Christ. It is that mighty claim that Andrew Perv says defines the heart of the Christian faith, the sole content and non-negotiable center of Christian doctrine and ministry. And in that great mystery of the Trinity, he both is fully God and fully man. Or as scholar N.T. Wright said, Jesus is where heaven and earth come together once and for all, the place where God's space and our space intersect and interlock. He is God. Paul told the Colossians, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before everything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning and supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross." When we say, I believe in Jesus, we're making a statement about who he is. You know, because he's fully human, he understands what it means for you to be lonely, or to be hurt, or to grieve, or to fear, or to love. He knows what it is to face temptation, and difficulty, and trial, and hard times, and good days as well as bad, joys as well as sorrow, pain as well as suffering. He knows and he understands our feelings what we go through because he's experienced it. And what's more, he stands alongside of it and alongside of us, whether we feel him or not, because he is man. But he's also God. Only God is perfect, and therefore only God could provide the perfect sacrifice. Because he's God, his death and resurrection are complete. Nothing else is needed. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. No amount of work on our behalf or sincere effort. God the Son is sufficient for our every need. He came as man. Former president and or pastor and president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Leith Anderson, wrote, Several years ago I was visiting Manila, and was taken of all places to the Manila garbage dump and saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on that dump site. They've constructed shacks out of the things other people throw away, and they send their children out early every morning to scavenge for food out of their other people's garbage so that they can have their family meals. People have been born and grown up on the garbage dump. 
They've had their families, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat, finished out their lives and died there without ever going anywhere else, even in the city of Manila. It's an astonishing thing. But Americans also live on that garbage dump. They are missionaries, Christians who have chosen to leave their own country and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who otherwise would never hear it. That is amazing to to me. People would leave what we have to go and live on a garbage dump. It's amazing. But not nearly as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth. The Son of God made that journey. He knew what He was doing. He knew where He was going. He knew what the sacrifices would be. He journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race, on a mission to save you and I. That's incarnation. Jesus leaving His throne in glory to become one of us, to save us. Thus in Scripture, as God incarnate, He is the Ancient of Days the anointed one, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author of life, the author of salvation, the blessed and only ruler, the bread of life, a banner for the nations, the chief cornerstone, a chief shepherd, a chosen and precious cornerstone, our hope, our Lord, the Christ of God, the consolation of Israel, faithful and true, the firstborn from among the dead, the firstborn over all creation. He is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God, a friend, God of all the earth, God over all, God's Son, the great high priest, the great light, the great shepherd, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, he who searches our hearts and minds, the head of every man, the head of the body, the church, the head over every power and authority, heir of all things, him who died and came to life again, he who loves us and freed us from our sins. He is Jesus. Those are various names given to him in Scripture. Not only did God become man, He came specifically to suffer and die for us and our sin. The cross was not an accident. It wasn't defeat. It wasn't unexpected. Jesus came came knowing what was going to happen. In John 12, when He faced imminent arrest and crucifixion, He said, My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no. Because it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So the creeds speak not only of the incarnation, but his humiliation. Contrary to Islam, which teaches he never really died, but was taken up into heaven, or those to teach that he didn't die, but someone else, perhaps Simon of Cyrene, took his place, or maybe he resuscitated in the tomb, and he went off and had family of his own. The creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into Hades. All for us. Because he, of us, he came and allowed himself to be dragged through the mud and the mire of our sin. That's his humiliation, his rejection, his suffering, his death on our behalf. Nothing left for us to do but receive it and his gift. It's amazing to think the creator of the universe loves each one of us so much that he'd go to Calvary. That alone should arouse our worship. That alone should cause us to open our hearts to follow him. 
having gone through the humiliation of Calvary. Scripture goes on giving him other names. It calls him God's one and only Son, the Holy and Righteous One, the Holy One of God, the Holy Servant, the Hope of Israel, a Horn of Salvation, the Image of the Invisible God, Emmanuel, an indescribable gift, our Intercessor, Judge of the living and the dead, King of kings, Lord of lords, King of the ages, Lamb of God, Light for revelations, the light of life, the light of men, the light of the world, living bread that came down from heaven, our Lord and Savior, the Lord of glory, the Lord of peace, the Lord of the harvest, Lord of the Sabbath, a man accredited by God, a man of sorrows, our master, the mediator of a new covenant, the Messiah, the morning star, the one who makes men holy, the one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, the ruler of the nations, our glorious Lord, our God and Savior, our only sovereign and Lord, our Passover lamb, our peace, our righteousness, holiness and redemption, the physician, prince, savior, prince of peace, prince of princes, prince of the hosts. He's Jesus. In describing what we believe about Jesus, the Apostles' Creed affirms his incarnation, both fully God and fully man. It affirms his humiliation. He was crucified, dead, and buried for our sin. But it also speaks of his exaltation, his victory. He descended into Hades, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. His resurrection, in other words, wasn't merely figurative. It doesn't really represent enlightenment or understanding, as many liberal scholars and New Age believers would have us believe. As the soldiers themselves reported to the high priest, the tomb was empty. It wasn't a defeat, as the Unification Church teaches. In spite of his words, it is finished. They believe he didn't complete his work, so God sent another savior named Sun Young Moon to complete it. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection, as the Jehovah Witnesses teach. He rose in the flesh, Scripture teaches. His tomb was empty. The angels declared, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Death did not have the final say or mastery over him. Paul says he conquered sin and death. He is alive. Do we understand that in the depth of our soul? What it means for our lives that he lives eternally? He's alive, and because of that, we can live. We're in the hands of a living Savior who's ever-present, who takes an interest in our lives, who will never leave or forsake us. And not only is he risen, but Acts speaks of his ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And now we wait for that blessed hope, for the day where he comes for his people. And so he is called a ransom for all men, the refiner and purifier, the resurrection and the life, the righteous judge, the righteous man, the righteous one, the rock eternal, the rock of ages, the ruler of God's creation, ruler of the kings of the earth, the savior of the world, the shepherd and overseer of your souls, the son of man, the son of the blessed one, the son of the living God, the son of the most high, the source of eternal salvation, a sure foundation, our teacher, 
the amen of God, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the beginning and the end, the bright morning star, the exact representations of God's being, the first and the last, the gate, the door, the good shepherd, the head, the last Adam, the life, the living one, the living stone, the Lord our righteousness, the man from heaven, the most holy, the one and only, the only God our Savior, the radiance of God's glory, the rising sun, day spring, the stone the builders rejected, the testimony given at its proper time, the true light, the true vine, the truth, the way, the word, the true bread from heaven, the wisdom of God, a witness to the peoples, the wonderful counselor, the word of God, the word of life, your life, your salvation. He's Jesus. Those are the names Scripture gives him. In the early 4th century, there was a lot of discussion about who was this man named Jesus. Sometimes those discussions got quite violent, even deadly, about the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. It, of course, led to much confusion caused by those who claimed one thing and others claiming another, by those who claimed some new, special, or secret knowledge. And so to put an end to all this murmuring and reach a common understanding of what was to be acceptable, in 325 A.D., 1,800 Christian leaders from both East and West came together in the ancient city of Nicaea, or modern-day Turkey. They spent a month in discussion and finally reached an agreement on a statement of faith that spelled out what has been widely accepted ever since as a guiding document on the true nature of our Lord and His relationship with God. It's what is known as the Nicene Creed, part of which states... We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again according to Scripture. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. He is Jesus. But in the end... It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what Peter said 2,000 years ago. What matters is, what do you say if Jesus asks you? What and who do you say that I am? Can you say from your heart, like Peter, you're not just another prophet or teacher, not just a great man. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Be careful how you answer it. Because if you say He is Lord... You're saying he has a claim on your life and how you live. And that's the invitation we make this morning as we close there. He is Jesus, and it is an invitation to call him Lord and Master and to let him have a claim on your life. Not to dominate, but to lift up, to show you what life was created to be, to show you what life with God is meant to be through his life, death, and resurrection. And so as we stand together... And as the worship team comes, it's an invitation. If you have not opened your heart to this man that we call Jesus, this one we testify and proclaim is man and God together who came to save us, 
We invite you to come to pray with you here at the front as we stand and sing together.